The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Harmonizing HCC Care with a Multidisciplinary Ensemble. Guidance for the Era of Novel Local Regional, Multimodal, and Systemic Strategies. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash ZQB 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, and welcome to Harmonizing HEC Care with a Multidisciplinary Ensemble, Guidance for the Era of Novel, Local, Regional, Multimodal, and Systemic Strategies. I'm Amit Singhal from UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, and I'm here with my colleagues, Dr. Goyal from Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center in Boston, and Dr. Palai from the University of Chicago Medicine in Chicago. So with that, we'll go to our first section, refining treatment selection to optimize patient outcomes, drawing from an expanded portfolio of first-line treatment options in advanced slash metastatic HEC. And for this first section, um, I, I will uh, be presenting uh, the, the data. So as many of you know, um, HEC is the third leading cause of cancer death worldwide. The highest burden for HEC is in East Asia and in Africa, largely driven by high rates of endemic hepatitis B in those areas. We have an intermediate incidence and mortality rate here in the United States. But here you can see that the trends are actually fairly disturbing. So when you take a look at the top 15 causes of cancer death over a 15-year period, you see that the mortality for most common cancers is nicely decreasing, including lung, colon, and breast. But over the same time period, you see sharp increases in liver cancer mortality um, leading the way over this 15-year period. And it's currently projected if these mortality trends continue, HEC will be the third leading cause of cancer death in the United States by the year 2035. So we clearly need to do a better job with this cancer um, in the near future. Now, when we think of HEC, one of the, the, the most notable things, and you'll hear this throughout the presentation, is that HEC in the Western world typically occurs in the setting of chronic liver disease, if not in the setting of cirrhosis. As all of us know, chronic liver disease can be from any one of several insults, including viral etiologies, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, as well as non-viral etiologies, alcohol-associated liver disease, as well as non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. The typical progression here is that you go from having one of these liver diseases, you develop chronic hepatitis, you progress to cirrhosis, and once somebody develops cirrhosis, they have an annual risk of HEC somewhere between 1% to 3% every year. Now, we won't get into this in this talk, but of course, you know, the most traditional pathway to skip the cirrhotic pathway and go directly from chronic hepatitis uh, to, to HEC has been hepatitis B. Um, and we do know now that about 25 to 30% of NASH-related HEC also bypasses this cirrhosis step and goes directly from chronic hepatitis to also develop HCC. And this is notable because we really are seeing a shift in terms of our epidemiology for HEC from a viral-related um, disease to um, a disease mediated by non-viral etiologies, including alcohol-associated liver disease and non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. This is a very elegant modeling study by Estes and colleagues, which actually takes a look at the anticipated NASH HEC incidence in um, uh, nearly every country worldwide. And it doesn't matter where you live. Um, you know, over the, next over the next 10 years, we expect to continue seeing increases in NASH-related HCC, including over a 100% increase here in the United States. 
Now, here's a figure that I think many of you have seen several times over the last several years. This is a um, more recent version of the Barcelona Clinic Liver Cancer Staging System, the most commonly used staging system for HCC. I won't go through this in detail, but in short, it's important to remember that the BCLC not only incorporates tumor burden, but also incorporates liver function. As I referenced, these patients typically have chronic liver disease, if not cirrhosis, as well as ECOG performance status. And all three of these things should always be assessed and documented when you're seeing an HCC patient because all of these are important when thinking through our treatment options. The other thing that you can see on this slide is that if you're found at an early stage, you have curative therapies available, surgical resection, liver transplantation, local ablation, and these are the only therapies that give us median survival over five years, if not 10 years. Even though chemoembolization, radioembolization, and systemic therapies prolong survival, and we've seen notable advances in those areas, you're taking a look at a median survival that unfortunately is much shorter. Now, of course, um, these are concepts that have come about and are more recognized in the year 2021 than they were even two to three years ago. We have stage transitions where you can actually have responses. So people who start with more advanced tumor burden can be downstaged to earlier stages of disease. Most notably, for example, pe people being downstaged to liver transplantation. And we have stage migration where patients start with earlier stages of disease, have disease progression, and therefore must be considered for alternative therapies, such as transitioning from local regional therapies to systemic therapies. The other thing that you can see highlighted in that red box there is you can see that we've had notable advances in terms of our prognosis with systemic therapy, as we'll cover today, where we now have a median survival over 19 months instead of 10 months, given advances in the immunotherapy options for HCC. Now, we see that um, in terms of a treatment algorithm, we have therapies that are delivered by multiple different providers. Um, and we, we really um, know that the best uh, uh, um, treatment outcomes are really when you have a multidisciplinary team, whether this is a co-located clinic or whether this is a tumor board, but you really need everyone sitting together at the table discussing the best treatment option for your individual patient. And there have been multiple studies that have now shown this is associated with improved survival. And so this should be considered standard of care for all of our HCC patients. So with, like every good presentation these days, this is gonna be case-based. So let's start with case one. Case one is a 64-year-old male with a history of hepatitis C cirrhosis, uh, underwent treatment for their hepatitis C, achieved SVR, um, and then uh, was subsequently unfortunately lost to follow-up. So was not receiving HCC surveillance and unfortunately presented two years later with abdominal pain. So at this time, he comes back to his hepatologist, um, and fortunately, because he had SVR, his cirrhosis remains compensated, no ascites, no encephalopathy, and his labs look great. You can see the AST, ALT, normal, bilirubin, normal, albumin, normal, although he continues to have some mild portal hypertension with a platelet count of 97, performance status zero, so fully functional. Notably, his AFP is markedly elevated at, at a level of 720 nanograms per milliliter, and the hepatologist uh, performs an ultrasound as you know, he or she should, um, and, is, uh, and the patient is found to have a large liver mass. Patient, because of these positive uh, you know, surveillance tests, undergoes an MRI and was found to have a 12-centimeter liver mass with arterial phase hyperenhancement, delayed washout, so classic for HCC, LIRADS-5, 
uh, and unfortunately has a metastatic lesion to the adrenal gland. So, you know, good liver function, good performance status, but unfortunately advanced HCC. So, um, you know, uh, what would you do at this stage? So um, can I ask um, Lipika, Anjana, um, what would you consider for this patient with advanced stage HEC? Yeah, from my perspective, you know, this adrenal met makes a big difference in this patient's care. And so one, I would really want to confirm that that was indeed a metastasis, because if the patient only had liver confined disease in a 12 centimeter lesion, they could be a candidate for a curative intent resection. So in anyone that I'm considering starting systemic therapy in, I do a biopsy anyway. So I would biopsy the adrenal lesion to confirm that the patient does have uh, distant metastasis. If the patient does have distant metastasis, this patient would be a candidate for systemic therapy because technically this is BCLC state, stage C disease with distant metastasis. And um, especially with that AFP of 722, that also suggests um, uh, metastasis. I would uh, start a tezobev in this patient. I yeah, I think that's a very reasonable approach. Uh, I completely agree with that. Um, the only thing to maybe just you know just to be uh, difficult is that it is a small adrenal lesion, you know, and they tend to grow slowly. Uh, and could you, if it's a very compensated uh, patient, you know, could you remove the adrenal lesion, cryoablated or laparsect it? And could you do local regional therapy if it's truly just a solitary HCC? Um, and I would consider tear in this patient just to see if they have significant feeding vessels and if, you know, and if they have a lot of shunting, if they don't, and it's pretty clear, I don't think it's an unreasonable option to think about, although it's not you know, the tried and true what we talk about when we think of metastatic disease. I think it's a great point, Anjana. You know, this is why it's great to talk about these patients in multidisciplinary conference. So indeed, you know, when we talk about these patients in our conference, we would certainly have a conversation with the patient, just as you recommended, a liver-directed therapy to the liver, and then thinking about ablation or radiation, for example, to the adrenal gland, um, and sharing with the patient that standard of care is X, but certainly going on systemic therapy means you have to come back to your oncologist's office every three weeks, get systemic therapy, there are side effects from it, and can we kick that can down the road? And so certainly offering the option of um, a combined local regional approach is very reasonable. Another approach would be to consider doing systemic therapy up front if they have stable disease, then move to local regional therapies on both fronts or the opposite. Start with local regional therapy and if the patient has more metastases, then move to liver direct, uh, systemic therapy. Yeah, I think, you know, this is why um, I think it's really important to discuss these cases in a, in a multidisciplinary fashion. We can see already from our panel that there's you know, multiple ways to approach this patient. Um, I think, you know, once again, sort of the, the sort of evidence-based approach here would, um, you know, be to start with systemic therapy given the presence of metastatic disease. Um, and this is an area that we've seen exciting advances. And so I do think that this would be a very reasonable option for this patient. Um, the one other thing that we would um, likely do in our center, you know, prior to considering systemic therapy is to do an upper endoscopy, as we'll talk about, given the importance of this prior to consideration of atezolizumab and bevacizumab. Uh, this would also be a patient who would be eligible for the clinical trial setting as well. Um, so um, with that, I think that, you know, we, as I've referenced already, we've seen notable advances in the front line of systemic therapy spaces. Um, you know, just as of a couple of years ago, we were really focused on tyrosine kinase inhibitor therapies, serafinib and lumvatinib. Um, and in this past year, with publication of the I Am Brave 150 study, 
We've now seen atezolizumab and bevacizumab really be the preferred um, agent for patients with systemic uh, disease or with advanced stage HCC. So, um, you know, let's talk about um, the IMBRAVE 150 uh, trial uh, in detail. This was a phase three study, which took patients with good liver function, good performance status, um, but with locally advanced or metastatic HCC, no prior systemic therapy, and randomized them one-to-one -to, -one to the combination of atizolizumab and bevacizumab, so a PDL one inhibitor and a VEGF inhibitor, or serafinib at its typical dose of 400 um, BID. Of note, and you're gonna hear this a couple times throughout the presentation today, all patients were required to undergo an upper endoscopy within six months prior to randomization given the higher risk of bleeding um, with bevacizumab. And this is one of the key inclusion criteria for this clinical trial. These are data that were um, uh, presented initially in the New England Journal and then updated um, at ASCO GI. Um, and here you can see the updated data from this clinical trial where we see a significantly improved overall survival as well as significantly improved progression-free survival with the combination of atezolizumab and bevacizumab compared to serafinib. You can see here that the, the median survival in the serafinib arm was um, you know, over 13 months whereas the median survival in the atezolizumab and bevacizumab arm over 19 months, a significant improvement compared to where we used to be. The other thing that you can see here is that you can see notable responses. So responses greater than of 30% or greater in 30% of patients. So this is really a very um, potent uh, combination therapy um, and one that significantly improves the survival of our patients with advanced stage HCC. Once again, here you can see the, the detailed data regarding the, res, the response rate and duration of response with a confirmed objective response rate um, using RESIST version 1.1, so the total um, treatment cavity of 30%. If you take a look at the enhancing component, even higher at 35%. You can see stable disease in another 35 to 45%. So overall, you get disease control, you know, i.e. either stable disease or responses, in over 70% of patients. And these responses tend to be durable, lasting several months, with a median duration of response over 18 months. Now, one of the other nice things about this is that this combination is very well tolerated. When you take a look um, at the adverse events that happen in 10% um, or greater, you see very few adverse events that are grade three um, or higher in the um, atezolizumab and bevacizumab arm. Really, the only AE that stands out is hypertension, and all the other AEs tend to be mild and or rare. Now, even though they're rare, they, there can be serious adverse events to any kind of immune checkpoint inhibitor, including, as we'll talk about later, any form of immune-related adverse event, such as immune-mediated colitis, um, you know, uh, um, pneumonitis, carditis, et cetera. But, um, you know, once again, overall, the therapy was very well tolerated in this clinical trial. I would argue, once again, on this slide, part of the reason why we did not see a lot of GI bleeding in this clinical trial was because of the patient selection requiring an upper endoscopy within six months prior to randomization. In parallel with the adverse events being uncommon, we see that the quality of life was actually preserved very well in the Atezo and Bev arm uh, compared to the Serafinib arm. So you can see here the time to deterioration of patient reported quality of life was quite prolonged over 11 months in the Atezo Bev arm 
compared to about three and a half months in the serafinib arm. So now going back to our patient, once again, um, hep C cirrhosis, post-SVR, presented symptomatically, good liver function, good performance status, but advanced stage HCC, you know, he's now discussed in the multidisciplinary um, team format. Um, and really at this time, after being discussed in the multidisciplinary team, um, once again, like we saw on our panel, it was a, you know, in this case was a, a nice, um, healthy discussion. Um, but at the end of the day, the patient was recommended to undergo systemic therapy. Um, as I referenced, um, this patient underwent an upper endoscopy um, given the consideration of atizolizumab and bevacizumab. Fortunately, the, the upper endoscopy showed no varices, no other high-risk stigmata um, of, of, of GI bleeding, and this patient was then scheduled to see a medical oncologist. So I think in this case, a TISO and BEV would be a very good option for this patient. Of course, the other thing that can be considered for a patient like this is clinical trials. And even though we've seen notable advances with a TISO and BEV, we're hoping that we see other advances through some of the clinical trials that are ongoing. So with this, I want to talk about some of those clinical trials um, that we're all um, uh, that are ongoing and that we're waiting to see data um, over the next um, several uh, months. So you know the, these trials, um, you know, really are uh, sorry. The, these trials are really focused on uh, two different types of strategies: dual checkpoint inhibition, um, taking a look at com combining two different types of immunotherapy, um, as well as um, other trials that are focused on the combination of immunotherapy with our traditional therapies, tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And you can see two trials listed under both of these different strategies. I'm gonna start with the dual checkpoint inhibition. Um, and the dual checkpoint inhibition currently is really focused on the combination of CTLA-4 inhibition and blocking the PD-1, PD-L1 pathway. Now, simplistically, I'm not gonna go through and teach everyone immunology in the next 20 seconds here, but I think in short, what we see here by blocking both of these pathways is that both of these pathways are meant to activate and keep T cells activated so those T cells can thereby um, act upon these tumor cells and, 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 and help um, uh, create responses. You can see, once again, these pathways are independent um, where the CTLA-4 inhibitors are really blocking the, 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 um, the uh, connection between B7 and CTLA-4, um, keeping, once again, the T cells active where the PD-1 and the PD-L1 is really taking the foot off the brake, um, you know, decreasing the tumor suppression of the T cells. Once again, both of these keeping T cells active so they can once again cause um, uh, responses in the tumor uh, uh, um, cell. So the, um, one of the therapy um, options that has been evaluated is the combination of dervalumab and tremolimumab. Once again, combination of PD-1 and CTLA-4 inhibitor. Here you can see phase two data taking a look at, these, um, at this combination evaluated in immune checkpoint inhibitor naive patients with advanced um, uh, HCC who progressed on or in, were intolerant or refused serafinib. So over 300 patients randomized to one of these four arms. And I think one of the interesting things about this trial is it not only evaluated two different combinations of dervalumab and tremolimumab, but also evaluated the combination versus single-agent dervalumab and single-agent tremolimumab. So what we see here when you take a look at this is that we see that responses were highest in the tremolimumab 300 followed by dervalumab. So the highest dose of the CTLA-4 then followed 
by um, the, the PD-1 inhibitor. And it's very interesting because the tremolimumab was only given as a one-time dose here. So it's really a priming dose of the CTLA-4, then followed by the PD-1 um, inhibitor here. And you can see here, this not only res um, resulted in the highest response rates, but also um, the, the longest survival here in the phase two study. This was the dose that um, actually was most of interest moving forward into a phase three study, the Himalaya trial. This evaluated um, the uh, dervalumab and tremolimumab in the first line setting versus serafinib. And so now this trial has given us a press release. Um, it, we don't know the details yet, but just um, you know, this past month, we learned that the combination of tremolimumab plus dervalumab demonstrated statistically significant um, survival benefit compared to serafinib in the first-line setting. Um, and we, we're, we're expecting those data to be reported um, in detail uh, in a meeting um, uh, in the near future. But once again, this will likely be another combination which is going to be a major player um, on the first-line setting here. Another combination in terms of the dual checkpoint inhibition has been the combination of nivolumab plus ipilimumab. Once again, same kind of strategy combining CTLA-4 and PD-1 inhibition. You can see very similarly to the data we saw with Derva and Tremi, we see the, the best responses um, and the best survival with the highest dose of ipilimumab, so this highest dose CTLA-4, combined then with the, the PD-1 uh, um, uh, inhibition. Um, and so once again, um, you know, you can see here, um, you know, the, the arm A, um, the, the IPI-3, NEVO-1, um, is the one that um, is moving forward um, in terms of um, not only accelerated approval in the second-line setting, um, which you'll hear more from Dr. Goyle um, in, in the next uh, um, uh, stage of this talk, um, but, you know, also has been the one that is moving forward in terms of first-line combination studies um, looking at this versus uh, TKI inhibitor therapy. And so the phase three Checkmate 90W trial is really taking a look at this uh, combination of nivolumab plus epilimumab um, compared to TKI therapy in the frontline setting. So once again, patients with good liver function, good performance status, but advanced stage HCC. And this is really primary endpoint of overall survival in the first line setting. We have not seen any results from this trial yet although we anticipate this coming out in the near future. Now moving to the other set of, um, combi of combination trials that are ongoing, taking a look at the combinations of immunotherapy plus TKIs, we have two, two, two trials that are also evaluating uh, this type of therapy. We have the Phase 3 COSMIC 312 trial. This evaluated the combination of cabozantinib, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, um, with or without atizolizumab, a PDL1 inhibitor versus serafinib. Um, and so, you know, this is, um, was an, a combination of interest because it is one of the first TKI, um, you know, IO combinations that, have, that has reported in terms of a press release. And you can see here the press release uh, uh, demonstrated that the combination of cabozantinib and atizolizumab uh, demonstrated significant improvements in progression-free survival um, uh, and there was a trend towards improvement in overall survival, but this failed to reach statistical significance in terms of overall survival. These were co-primary endpoints. Um, we don't have the detailed data from this trial as well. We do anticipate this coming out over the next couple months. Um, and I think once we know the detailed data, we'll have a better understanding of where cabozantinib and atezolizumab fall within the, the options in the frontline setting.
Finally, we also have um, uh, uh, the combination of lenvatinib plus pembrolizumab, uh, another TKI immunotherapy combination. This um, has very exciting data in the phase two setting, where you can see that this combination actually resulted in responses in 45% of patients um, and had very durable responses, as well as had a promising overall survival signal uh, that was over 20 months. And so this now has um, moved on to a phase three setting um, where the combination of lenvatinib and pembrolizumab is being compared to lenvatinib in the frontline setting. Once again, we have not seen data from this trial yet, although many of us are excited to see this, um, and we will see if this is another trial that hopefully um, will reveal positive results in the future. Now, I, I talked about some of the trials that are further along, but there are many other early phase studies that are also going on with immunotherapy combinations that you can see listed on the slide. I won't read these off for you, but you can see that these th studies are um, ongoing in phase one, phase two settings, um, looking at different combinations. But I think we're going to see many more trials come out over the next several years. One of the other trials that is ongoing is the combination of uh, Tivozantinib, uh, a VEGF uh, uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Um, this was evaluated in a phase 1b2 trial in uh, patients with advanced um, stage HCC. You can see there um, having, um, you know, sort of uh, promising um, signals from a median progression-free survival and having a median overall survival of nine months um, as uh, monotherapy. Um, and this is now um, being evaluated at a phase 1b2 trial I'm looking at this in combination with Devalumab in the frontline setting. Um, uh, and so we'll have to see um, basically how this combination progresses once again as this moves on. So now um, going back to our case, and once again, I, I referenced this early on, um, on the last time I talked about this, this patient once again would be a great combination, would be a great candidate for atizolizumab and bevacizumab, but could also be considered for one of these many clinical trials that I've referenced. And so if this patient um, was in a center with a clinical trial, I do think that this would be a very good option for this individual patient given this clinical setting. Now, um, you know, a question comes up, you know, we talked about once again, the importance of the upper endoscopy. Um, so let me ask, um, you know, Anjana Lipica, what would you do um, if this patient had a recent GI bleep? Would you still consider a Tizobab? Would you do something else? So I, I think that, so a recent GI bleed, um, regardless, I guess, if it's variceal or ulcer bleed, you know, I'd be a little bit um, more hesitant to start a BEB-based treatment. Um, and technically, I guess, any of the VEGF inhibitors, although we're um, specifically here talking about TESO-BEB, um, it, it really depends if it is, you know, something that we fixed, it's an ulcer that was clipped or a bleeding vessel versus varices, and uh, whether or not they need ongoing treatment. Um, and, you know, that's where I may consider a different therapy like Lymet, you know, either a dual checkpoint inhibitor or uh, Lymetinib or Serafinib, even though, again, theoretically, I guess there's still a risk of bleeding. Lupica, anything different that you would do? Yeah, no, I would agree with Anjana that if someone had a recent GI bleed, I would be nervous about giving bevacizumab and would consider uh, either dual agent or single agent immunotherapy in that patient. If the patient had something that was treatable, then certainly could consider treating and then going on a VEGF inhibitor in short order. 
Yeah. I think that, you know, once again, with this idea of um, the IMBA-150 study, all these patients required an upper endoscopy. Patients with GI bleeding history, um, particularly variceal bleeding, were excluded from this. And so we don't have safety data for bevacizumab in this clinical setting. And so this is a patient that I, you know, I agree with, um, you know, both Anjana and Lipica that I would consider another agent um, for, for this patient if they had a history of recent GI bleeding. Um, you know, the nice thing is that we do have other therapies that continue to be alternatives in the frontline setting. We have serafinib and lenvatinib that um, are alternatives in the frontline setting. Um, at this time, all we have is a press release, but, um, you know, to your point, once we see data from the combination of dervalumab and tremolimumab, this, you know, at least in theory would be another option that would be um, available and, you know, um, would be a good option to consider in the future in this patient. Um, based on what we have as of, you know, November, um, you know, 2021, um, I think that, you know, in this patient, I would consider, um, you know, either serafinib or lenvatinib. Um, you know, once again, these are data that many of the people in the audience have already heard, um, but these were approved um, in the frontline setting based on the phase three SHARP trial, as well as the phase three REFLECT trial, respectively, SHARP showing a significant benefit of serafinib versus placebo in the frontline setting, REFLECT showing non-inferiority for levatinib compared to serafinib. And both of these remain in all guidelines as alternatives for patients that are not eligible for atizolizumab or bevacizumab um, for any um, uh, reason. So, um, you know, next question, um, you know, back to this case, you know, playing the what if game, you know, what if this patient had child B disease? What would you consider in that case? You know, among the most robust data we have in child PUB in terms of prospective data in a trial is the Checkmate 040 study looking at nivolumab in patients with child PUB7 or B8, you know, another arm of the same study that you shared with Ipinevo. And in that study, it showed that the um, hepatitis, uh, the rate of, you know, hepatic TRAEs was actually similar to what you see in people with child PUA liver disease. And so in the end, for patients who have B7, B8, have a bilirubin of less than 3.0, don't have um, refractory ascites, uh, these are patients that I would consider nivolumab in. Um, serafinib is also not an unreasonable option based on the Gideon study, as we see here. And you can see that um, overall, the um, rate of AEs and the tolerability was reasonable with serafinib as well. Yeah, I think that, you know, basically we have two, two you know, therapies which have good data. We have real-world data from the Gideon study, as you referenced, in terms of serafinib being tolerable in child PUB patients, and we have data from the Checkmate 040 study, once again, showing tolerability and safety um, in well-selected child PUB patients. I think the other thing to keep in mind is a child PUB patient isn't a child PUB patient, so it matters how you got there. Um, I think well-selected child PUB patients without refractory, you know, encephalopathy, refractory ascites, probably more a child PUB7 patient than a child PUB9 patient. I think the, the options of either serafinib um, or nivolumab in these patients is probably reasonable. Obviously, unfortunately, limited trial data, limited data in general, but unfortunately something we commonly see in clinical practice. So, um, you know, uh, last couple of minutes, I just want to um, uh, cover briefly an emerging multimodal approach um, that is interesting in the first line um, advanced stage setting. Um, you know, so TT fields um, are an antimitotic therapy that cause um, cell arrest. Um, they're basically, they work by 
alternating electric fields that can disrupt charged particles during mitosis, uh, once again causing cell death and dividing cancer cells, but fortunately spare quiescent cells. Um, and this, once again, has some interesting data that are coming out in you know, different cancer types, including HCC. So to learn more about this mechanism of action for TT fields, we actually have a short video uh, that we can watch now. In metaphase of cell division, cells are a rounded shape as the mitotic spindle forms. Intracellular components such as macromolecules and organelles are naturally charged. Tumor-treating fields, or TT fields, disrupt cancer cell division by physically interacting with molecules required for mitosis. When alternating electric fields are applied to cancer cells, they disrupt microtubule polymerization. Tubulin dimers align with the electric field and are not able to form microtubules. This prevents the organized assembly of the mitotic spindle required for normal cell division. The inhibition of microtubule formation leads to metaphase arrest and cancer cell death. In addition, these deformed microtubules can lead to abnormal DNA segregation between daughter cells, which also results in cancer cell death. TT fields can also affect cells after metaphase. If a cancer cell has passed metaphase and enters the cytokinesis phase, the cell takes on an hourglass shape. This state under TT fields creates a non-uniform electric field inside the cell, creating dielectrophoresis. Net forces push the macromolecules and organelles toward the mitotic furrow, and this disruption leads to structural disorganization and cancer cell death. And I think one of the things that's interesting about TT fields is that it's really cancer-specific. So, you know, the, it's tuned to a specific frequency to decide which dividing cancer cell it will target. And so you can see here, for example, you know, normal intestinal cells have a lower frequency at 50 kilohertz, whereas, for example, HCC has a, a, a frequency of 150 kilohertz. So essentially, you can tailor this based on the cancer type that you're trying to treat, and it's because of this sort of tailoring is part of the reason why this, you know, should have safety in terms of sparing, um, you know, quiescent cells while still attacking uh, the cancer cells. Now, this um, uh, uh, therapy was evaluated in the phase two HEPA-NOVA trial in advanced HEC, 25 patients treated with TT fields plus daily serafinib, followed by CT or MRI every 12 weeks uh, until progression with the primary endpoint of overall radiologic response. And in short here, you can see of the 27 patients that were enrolled, you see a disease control rate of 91%, objective responses of 18%, and these um, numbers compare favorably to historical controls. Um, given these data, this is now moving into a phase three trial that's being planned with the new standard of care as we discussed, atezolizumab and bevacizumab. So this now is being evaluated and, um, you know, interestingly, TT fields plus atezolizumab and bevacizumab was granted FDA breakthrough therapy designation and advanced stage HEC. Now, this is granted breakthrough therapy designation. It doesn't mean it's approved. It just means that they are fast-tracking, you know, the, the trial uh, um, enrollment uh, and, and trial rollout to see if this um, early data um, is uh, confirmed in larger clinical trials. So key takeaways from these, um, uh, this first section, atezolizumab and bevacizumab is the new standard of care for patients with advanced stage HEC and good liver function. 
There are multiple emerging immunotherapy combinations that are being studied in the first-line setting, several of these being informed by promising phase two data. Um, it's not all immunotherapy. We continue to have an important role for tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Serafinib and levatinib continue to have a role in the first-line setting. And as you'll hear from Dr. Goyle, um, you know, we do have TKI therapies that continue to play a role in the second-line setting. Um, and finally, as you just heard, we have emerging um, multimodal strategies that also appear promising and interesting that we should get data over the next several years. Uh, with that, um, I'll, I'll hand it over to, to my, my good friend, uh, Lipica um, Goyle, um, who will be talking um, uh, about tailoring sequencing approaches after progression on first-line therapy and advanced uh, stage HEC, uh, a practice update for us hepatologists. Thank you very much, Amit. It's my honor and pleasure to be presenting with you and Anjana today. I'm going to be talking about Plan B. What do we do after a Tezobev? So we'll start with a case. We have a 67-year-old woman who has a history of NASH and was found to have a 9-centimeter HCC with right portal vein invasion. She was started on frontline immunotherapy. And while she was on a Tezobev, she had an episode of grade 2 immune-related colitis, which resolved with steroids. Then she was rechallenged with a tezolizumab and bevacizumab and had a partial response of around 40%. And then at 12 months, she presented with disease progression with new metastatic disease, Luckily, her liver function was preserved, and she had a child PUA disease. Her performance status was preserved, and her AFP was 198. We are dealing with in the clinic now where people do well on a Tezobev. Luckily, afterwards, their liver function is preserved, their performance status preserved, and they say, Doc, what do you have for me for Plan B? So luckily, we have multiple options in the Plan B setting, and how do you think about that? You know, uh, this is where I engaged my oncologist <laughs> heavily. Um, but no, th you're right. This is, I think, one of the most challenging aspects is, you know, you have this uh, great first line um, treatment. And then what do you do if it fails? So uh, usually I wouldn't think of more immunotherapy. This is when I may think of switching to a tyrosine kinase inhibitor or um, you know something with more uh, common or, or more um, mechanisms of action like cabocinib um, would be things that I would be thinking about. Yeah, I, I think you know, Anjan, I, I agree. I think that um, you know the the way that I think about this, and there's probably two different approaches here. There's the quote unquote T minus one approach, where you just put a tezobev up front, and then you go serafinib or lenvatinib, and then you preserve you know what used to be second line therapies and move those to the third line. So Regorafenib, cabozantinib, ramacirumab all get moved to the, the third line setting. Um, or you use what I call a grab bag approach where you just put everything together and you choose whatever you think is best for this patient. And you can choose, you know, serafinib, lumvatinib, regorafenib, cabozantinib, or ramacirumab if the AFP is greater than 400, not relevant in this case. Um, but, you know, you can choose any one of those. And then, you know, the other therapy that is approved here is ipilimumab and nivolumab, right? So accelerated approval in the second line setting, which you could also consider adding in here because even though you've already acted upon the PD-1, PD-L1 axis, you add in the CTLA-4. I think, you know, that the, you know, honestly, this is a data-free zone. There's no, there's nothing that's actually been shown to be beneficial after a TESOBEV because we haven't had those trials or those data come out. So as long as you do something, the good thing is you're not wrong. I agree. Well, can I throw a question back at you? With this immune-mediated colitis, or immune-related colitis, I uh, apologize, although it resolved the steroids, um, yeah. would you feel comfortable doing dual yeah. checkpoint again? It's a, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great question. So, like, you know, honestly, we know 
that when you have PD-1 and CTLA-4, you have like you can have higher severity and sort of earlier, um, you know, uh, um, incidence in, in of, of these sort of immune-related AEs, and so that may give you pause um, in terms of considering the CTLA-4. Um, you know, I would argue on the flip side, even though they had the grade two immune-related colitis, they actually had a pretty good response. They had a partial response of 40%. So I think this would be something that you probably would need to talk to the patient about. This is, you know, somebody who had 12 months without progression, you had a good response up front. And so this is just really weighing that risk-benefit ratio. But I agree with you that, you know, the grade two immune-related colitis may give you pause in terms of considering the dual check one inhibition, and you may consider... Um, you know, the TKI therapy. Um, of course, you could also hopefully go on the TKI therapy and then save something for third line. So, you know, you know, the nice thing is as we have more and more effective therapies, um, you know, we may be able to squeeze in more lines of therapy. Yeah, I think this setting actually highlights the importance of the partnership that we all have with our patients. As both of you are saying, the importance of talking to our patients about this being a data-free zone, we have multiple different options talk about the side effects and the benefits of these different drugs, recognizing in the post-atezobev setting, unclear exactly what the efficacy is going to be, and then make a decision together with our patients with uh, decision sharing. So this is a slide that you know looked very different several years ago because it was a relatively empty slide. <laughs> and as oncologists, we're always very excited when we have um, busy slides for what the new treatment paradigm is in a disease and that we can offer our patients choices. So as Amit very elegantly put in the first part of this uh, talk, there's a Tezobev in the first line and then multiple ongoing frontline immunotherapy trials, which we hope will offer additional options in addition to a Tezobev. And then for patients who are not candidates for a Tezobev, we also have serafinib, orlin, vatinib. And then in the second line, as has been discussed in the discussion just now, we have multiple different TKIs, and we have the anti-VEGF2 monoclonal antibody, ramacirumab. Now, that's the receptor. Bevacizumab is a monoclonal antibody against VEGF, which is a ligand. Um, so ramacirumab could also still be an option to consider. And then also we have immunotherapy options, as uh, Amit discussed from the Checkmate 040 study, nivolumab and ipilimumab, combination of PD-1 and CTLA-4 inhibitors, and then single-agent pembrolizumab. So I'll briefly discuss the data for serafinib and lenvatinib, and then talk about the middle box here, the different TKIs and ramacirumab, and then finally talk about immunotherapy. So the data for serafinib and lenvatinib, you know, serafinib reigned king for many years in HCC without any other drugs being able to beat it in terms of overall survival. It went up against placebo and showed an overall survival of uh, about two, more than two months. And then there was the REFLUX study, which was lenvatinib versus serafinib. It was a non-inferiority study, and it showed that lenvatinib was non-inferior to serafinib. It did have a higher response rate, um, but overall it showed non-inferiority, and these both agents became options in the, in the front line. And then uh, it's important to think about what the side effect profile of is of these two drugs because we're often in a situation where we're choosing between one drug or the other. And as you can see, lenvatinib is a quite a strong inhibitor of VEGFR2, and you see higher rates of the VEGF pathway-related um, AEs. 
So you see hypertension at 42% and you see the proteinuria at 25% compared to serafinib where it's 30% and 11%. So in a patient, for example, who goes on a tezobev, who has significant um, VEGF, VEGF pathway-related adverse events, it might be a consideration that patient might uh, potentially have fewer side effects with serafinib compared to linvatinib. Um, one of the side effects that you see more commonly with serafinib is the palmar plantar erythrodysesthesia, which is the hand-foot syndrome, so something to think about with serafinib. But overall, two good options in the post-atezobev setting if we do the T-1 approach that Amit talked about. Then what are the other TKIs we have? We have regorafenib. So, you know, one of the things when we have lots of options is we think about what are the eligibility criteria for each of these studies and are there any biomarkers that help us choose between one or another? So we have clinical biomarkers and for the regorafenib study, it was tolerability of serafinib. In this study, it was patients who had radiological progression during serafinib treatment and they had good tolerance of serafinib at at least 50% of the dose, 400 milligrams once a day, for at least 20 days of the past 28 days. And in this study of regorafenib versus placebo, regorafenib did show an improved median overall survival at 10.6 months compared to 7.8 months with placebo. So this gained FDA approval in the second line after serafinib. And then, you know, it's always important to look at real-world data, too, and really appreciate our colleagues who dedicate their efforts to collecting these data. And what we saw with regorafenib was that the median survival in a real-world study, the refined study, was similar, even actually a little bit better. It was 13.2 months compared to what we saw in resource, which was 10.6 months. You know, the side effect profile of regorafenib is something that's important to discuss with patients. The most common side effects are palmar plantar erythrodysesthesia, or the hand-foot syndrome, diarrhea, fatigue, and decreased appetite. So you certainly see some GI side effects with this. Um, but overall, with some good active management, yeah, you can help people get through uh, managing these side effects. Rigorafenib can be an effective treatment for patients. Now moving on to another tyrosine kinase inhibitor, cabozantinib. You know, cabozantinib is unique because in addition to hitting VEGFR2, it also hits MET and it also hits Axel. Um, you know, there's some data that suggests that maybe VEGF uh, resistance uh, or inhib uh, sorry, resistance to VEGF inhibitors could be mediated through um, uh, increased signaling through the MET pathway. Um, so cabozantinib was tried after serafinib. Uh, in anyone who had prior serafinib, these patients were randomized to either cabozantinib 60 milligrams per day or placebo in a two-to-one fashion. And importantly, in this trial, people were allowed to have one or two prior therapies, which is different than most of the other uh, trials of drugs that are available in the second line. And in this trial, patients did not necessarily have to have good tolerability of serafinib in order to go on to cabozantinib. And this trial showed an improvement in median overall survival with cabo is 10.2 months, with placebo is 8.0 months. Um, with a hazard ratio of 0.76, and this was a positive study. So cabozantinib was shown to improve survival in the second or third line setting. And then finally, ramaciramab. As I mentioned, this is a monoclonal antibody against VEGFR2. And in the REACH study, which was an all-comer study after serafinib um, in patients with advanced disease, that study was negative, but in a in a, it was against placebo, but in a subgroup analysis, it showed that patients with an AFP greater than or equal to 400 had the most benefit. So it's one of the first instances um, that I know of in GI oncology where 
uh, a subgroup analysis led to another phase three trial. And this was a REACH2 study, and it was indeed positive. So patients with HCC that was unresectable or metastatic that had an AFP of greater than or equal to 400 were randomized to either ramucirumab or placebo in a two-to-one fashion. And ramucirumab showed an overall uh, an improvement in median overall survival. The median overall survival with ramucirumab was 8.1 months compared to 5.1 months with placebo. And overall, this gained uh, FDA approval uh, in the second-line setting after serafinib for patients with an elevated AFP. Again, the biomarker here was AFP to be able to decide if they would be a good candidate for ramucirumab. So now let's go back to our case. So again, this was a 67-year-old woman with NASH. She had a 9-centimeter tumor. She had right portal vein thrombosis. She went on a Tezo plus Bev. She had the grade 2 colitis. She had the partial response of 40%. And then at 12 months, she had progression. So we discussed what some of the options would be, serafinib, linvatinib, cabozantinib, regorafinib, or ramucirumab. You know, the only one I would say that I would not use in this case is ramucirumab because her AFP was less than 400. But as Anjana and Amit, you know, very elegantly described, you know, any of these would be a reasonable option because it's a data-free zone. Um, we often will do serafinib or linvatinib next and then consider cabozantinib or regorafinib in the third line. So now going back to our patient who had the NASH and she was on a Tezobev, she ended up going on to serafinib next. And she had stable disease on serafinib, but then developed grade three hand-foot syndrome. The drug was held. She was rechallenged with serafinib 400 once a day. And then she tolerated that well for three months, but then had disease progression with an AFP of greater than, of 365. So at this point, um, Amit, what would you choose for this patient next? Yeah, so, you know, right now, um, basically, she was on serafinib. She had the hand-foot skin reaction. Um, it seems like she did okay with the the lower dose of 400 milligrams daily. So even though she had the hand-foot skin, it is important to remember that, you know, coming into to, into the resource trial, they only required a dose of 400 milligrams daily for 20 or 28 days. So even though she had this, um, she technically could still get regorafinib. She meets that serafinib tolerability mark. And there's data that shows hand-foot skin reaction actually is associated with better responses to both serafinib and regorafinib. So I think that, you know, this would be somebody who I think I would actually consider agorafenib. Um, And then the other one would be cabozantinib. I mean, so cabozantinib, once again, if you, you know, I think devil's always in the details of how that hand-foot skin reaction was and how the patient responded to that, how sort of, you know, averse they may be to having that again. Um, uh, so, you know, I think those are the two TKIs um, I would probably consider um, at this point. And then once again, you know, we've previously mentioned the ipinevo, and so you know, if this patient now has had, you know, milder um, immune-related colitis, more severe hand-foot skin, um, you know, this would be something I would discuss with them. But you may consider ipinevo as well at this setting. So yeah, I think you have three options that strike me as being on the table. Yeah, absolutely. And how about dose reduction? Would you start with full dose regorafenib or full dose cabozantinib? At our center, I mean, we don't typically start at full dose. Um, and this is somebody where, particularly with the hand-foot skin reaction, we'd, we'd even do that more. But we typically start at a lower dose. So for serafinib, we start at 400 daily and titrate up. Um, you, know, regu- you know, same thing with Rigo and Cabo. Um, you know, we start at a lower dose and titrate up. This has actually been shown in colorectal cancer to be a very viable strategy of starting low and titrating up. Um, and as long as you titrate up, I think you um, achieve, you know, similar, if not better outcomes, actually, um, you know, with 
with some of the TKIs in HCC. So our standard practice is to start low and go up. I don't, um, Anjana, what do you do in what do you do in your setting? No, I absolutely agree, and I think especially since she's already gone through two lines of therapy, you know, you want to maximize effects for as long as you can. So, absolutely, I agree with uh, what you both said. Yeah, and I think actually now in the regorafenib pembrolizumab trial after atezobev, I think they're using this strategy where you're starting with a certain dose of regorafenib, and if the patients tolerate it, going up on the regorafenib. Yeah, and I think you know with the combinations when you're combining with the immunotherapy, given the fact that you're not necessarily trying to do all of the TKI effect, you're really trying to be more immunomodulatory. I do think that you know as we start to go through the combination, um, you know you may see that lower dose TKIs do work. But I mean, I guess that's sort of a separate discussion, but something interesting. Yeah, no, it's a great point. So going back to case two, you know, in the second line. As we've discussed, we have these five different options. We talked briefly about different clinical biomarkers to choose between them. You know, one thing our field certainly needs is even better biomarkers, whether they're liquid-based or biopsy-based or other bio, uh, biomarkers, to be able to figure out how do we choose between these five different options. And then in the third line, depending on what people got second line, you can also see that people have multiple different options, again, with different kinds of clinical biomarkers. Um, so finally, I'll just briefly discuss the immunotherapy data. Again, these three trials were all done in patients who were previously treated with serafinib. Um, with the nivolumab trial, it actually also had some patients who were serafinib naive. The overall response rate with single-agent PD-1, nivolumab, or pembrolizumab was similar, about 14 to 20%, with nivolumab 17% with pembrolizumab. And then with the combination of PD-1 plus CTLA-4, Nevo plus IPI, the response rate was 32%, and uh, Amit very clearly went through that data elegantly. Um, overall, uh, nivolumab, pembrolizumab, and nivolumab plus IPI all got accelerated approval. On review, pembro and nivolumab and ipilimumab retained their FDA approval. So in someone who has serafinib or even linvatinib frontline, these are two options that I consider for patients next. As Amit mentioned, when you do a combination of PD-1 plus CTLA-4, people do tend to have a higher rate of side effects, including a higher rate of immune-related adverse events. But luckily, majority of these patients, when you put them on steroids, the AEs resolve. And so, again, careful patient selection is important for this. When you look at the long-term results of pembrolizumab and nivolumab plus IPI, you see the overall survival with pembrolizumab was 13.9 months. In the NEVO plus IPI uh, study, that was a single-arm study, the uh, median overall survival was 22 months. So what do we think about when we're selecting immunotherapy? Some of these have come up in the discussion, but first we think about did the patient receive immunotherapy in the first line or not? So did the patient get serafinib-linvatinib? We're more likely to give people a shot at immunotherapy second line if they got a tezobev. Then we can consider ipinevo or we can consider ipinevo possibly third line. Um, if patient had rapid progression or intolerance to tyrosine kinase inhi inhibitors, that would be also a good option, a good place to think about immunotherapy. If patients have increasing degrees of hepatic dysfunction, um, you can consider single-agent nivolumab in patients with child PUB, as we discussed in the first segment. And then if patients have contraindications to antiangiogenic therapy, such as non-healing wounds or active venous thromboembolism or bleeding complications, as in the case that Amit presented, uh, the immunotherapy would also be a good option for these patients. 
So in conclusion, we're very excited that there are many different options now for patients with hepatocellular carcinoma. We have a frontline option, atezolizumab plus bevacizumab. As we've repeated many times already in this segment, the importance of doing an EGD within six months of starting this therapy to make sure patients do not have untreated varices. There are many exciting online front, uh, ongoing frontline studies. Um, the Himalaya tri trial was positive with duralumab and tremolumab, and we look forward to seeing the results of multiple other studies. And then for patients who are not candidates for these combination studies, combination regimens, we do have serafinib and lenvatinib. And then we talked about a variety of other therapies here. Again, I would just emphasize the importance of uh, doing biopsies and really trying to understand what are, the what are the biomarkers that predict response to these therapies. We know from different trials that not everybody who goes on plan A is able to go on plan B because they have you know, a deterioration of either their liver function or their performance status. And not everyone who goes on plan B is able to get to plan C. So it really behooves us to do our best to match the right treatment with the right patient um, as soon as possible so that we can give people the best shot right up front. Thank you very much. Thanks, Lipica, for that exciting talk. Um, to finish off our presentation today, uh, we next will have Dr. Pillai uh, presenting novel strategies for patients with early and intermediate stage HCC. Anjana? Great. Thanks, Amit. Um, so I'll be focusing on this topic and specifically looking at the role of the hepatologist as well as multidisciplinary teams in making these decisions as well. So we'll start with a case again. Um, so case number three, this is a 45-year-old woman with NASH with compensated cirrhosis. Her imaging shows an incidental liver mass. Uh, an MRI shows an eight-centimeter classic LR5 lesion with two satellite nodules, uh, no vascular information, no metastatic disease. Um, and with child's PUA uh, and excellent performance status. So here we're gonna think about what we could do for this patient. So everyone's familiar with the VCLC staging system. Again, looking not just at tumor characteristics, but also underlying uh, liver function as well, as well as performance status. And so we're gonna really concentrate on the stage B or intermediate stage, which is a very heterogeneous group. And uh, level one evidence is for taste. Uh, level two is tear as well as downsizing uh, or downstaging to transplant. And that's really what we're gonna concentrate on these patients. So when you look at the ASLD recommendations, this is from 2018, the question is, should adults with cirrhosis and HCC with 2-2 or T3, no vascular involvement, who are not candidates for resection or transplantation, be treated with taste, tear, or external radiation? So the ASLD recommendation is that it is better or recommends to have local regional therapy in these patients versus no treatment, uh, with taste having the highest quality of evidence. And the ASLD, importantly, does not recommend one one form of LRT over the other. Again, the quality uh, certainty of evidence is low, but strength uh, is conditional. And again, um, the evidence is really for child's pew A and highly selected child's pew B patients. Uh, there's really no data to support local regional therapy uh, for patients with child C or poor performance status. Um, and finally, you know, tear as far as tear, uh, tear or Y90 specifically, just got FDA approved for um, HCC beyond the human um, device exemption that it was previously approved under. So results for this should be emerging, um, but right now they are limited. 
So this is looking at the 6 and 12 prognostic score for taste. This is a multi-center trial from um, China that was published by Wang and colleagues in Journal of Hepatology. So this is a prognostic model. Um, there was 1,600 treatment-naive patients that were characterized as ideal for taste. Child's Pew A to B7, again, excellent performance status, no advanced disease, no vascular invasion, no metastatic disease or tumor rupture, again, no significant decompensation, and 74% of these patients were BCLCB. And they used what's called a linear predictor, so they looked at the largest tumor diameter as well as tumor number and categorized into three different categories. So less than or equal to six, greater than six, but less than or equal to 12 and greater than 12. And you can see on this graph that less than or equal to six had uh, the best overall survival at 49 um, months, whereas uh, greater than 12 had uh, the least overall survival at 15.8. And that shows in both these charts, uh, you can see to the right of the screen as well. Now, this is looking at SBRT, or stereotactic body radiation therapy, as an alternative to taste. The first study on the left is a retrospective uh, single center study from the University of Michigan. Um, so they looked at uh, propensity score matching of uh, patients getting SBRT versus taste. There were 209 patients, 84 got taste, and 125 received SBRT. Um, overall, they were matched, except the SBRT patients had slightly smaller tumors, so 2.3 centimeters versus 2.9, and the taste patients had more active tumors. So uh, median was two tumors versus one in the SBRT arm. There was a longer follow-up for taste, and this graph is actually looking at local control rate. And you can see that the SBRT group had a one-year local control rate of 97% versus 47% in the taste arm, and two years of 91% versus 23%. Um, as far as grade three and four toxicities, it was 8% in the SBRT group and 13% in taste. And importantly, though, there was no overall survival um, difference between the two groups. Now, the second study on the right is a meta-analysis of 25 trials. Again, um, this is uh, 11 of those were randomized control, looking at taste and radiation therapy versus taste alone. Again, unresectable HCC. And so you can see that, again, the graphs on the right show this uh, quite well, that the combination arm of taste and RT had a survival of 22.7 months versus taste alone, which was 13.5 months. And importantly, you can see that the survival benefit actually progressively increased uh, from two, three, four, and five year, uh, respectively. So uh, this next study, Kudo and colleagues look at this proof of concept study uh, looking at lenvantanib versus taste and intermediate HCC. The idea is to uh, use lenvantanib first rather than traditional taste. And these are patients that have multinodular um, tumors but and beyond up to seven, but unresectable and no vascular invasion. Um, there were about 30 patients that were actually enrolled in this final analysis. And you can see that the lenvantanib arm is the one in the dark blue and the taste is the orange. And the lenvantanib arm actually had better overall response rate, and this graph is showing overall survival. At the end of the study, it was a little over 37 months versus 21 months in the TACE arm. 
Um, there are ongoing phase three trials, the ABC-HCC trial, or the Tizaluzumab plus Bevacizumab versus TACE in intermediate stage HCC um, that is uh, recruiting, and um, the primary endpoint is time to failure. And then the regorifenab uh, plus nivolumab versus TACE, um, the renotase trial, the primary endpoint is progression-free survival. Now, looking at the concept of moving TKIs to earlier stage disease and the rationale for this, we do know that modalities like TACE, which is essentially cutting off the blood supply uh, of the tumor via the hepatic artery, really leads to hypoxemia of the vessel. Now, the theory is that because of this hypoxemia, you get these leaky vessels and you have also an increase in HIF1-alpha and VEGF, among other um, um, cytokines that increases angiogenesis, which can in turn lead to tumor growth and metastases and more anti-apoptotic proteins. So the idea is using TKIs earlier can hopefully quote unquote normalize the vasculature and change the microenvironment so that um, you have less leaky vessels and less uh, central hypoxemia. These are several of the, uh, the trials that looked at combination of taste and systemic therapy, um, TKI specifically, um, to look at that concept. There's five trials here. All of them, unfortunately, uh, were negative studies, except for the phase two tax tactics trial, which looked at TASE plus serafinib versus TASE alone. Now, in this trial, rather than overall survival, they did look at pro progression-free survival, and these patients had a significantly improved pro progression-free survival, although there was no uh, change in the overall survival. Although this trial had probably the longest overall survival compared to the other trials, one of the reasons that we think that these trials tend to fail is because you need quite some time to get good overall survival data. And as patients uh, uh, become have adverse events or failed therapy, the idea is the control arm is most likely getting um, more active treatments. And that's why it's harder to show that difference. So the next wave in local regional therapy, uh, next wave was really the idea of local regional therapy plus immunotherapy. And this, um, I'm gonna concentrate on the slide on the right, or the graph on the right, which is by Duffy and colleagues that was published in the Journal of Hepatology. This was looking at tremolumumab, which is an anti-CTLA-4 inhibitor and ablative therapy, either with, um, uh, with radiation um, or chemoembolization, um, I'm sorry, radiofrequency ablation or chemoembolization. And in this Study, most of these patients had hepatitis C, and uh, they under they they were given tremolumab infusions, and after that course of infusions um, for a subset period of time, then had the local regional therapy. And you can see that they measured a few things, including CD3 and CD8. And you can see that responders actually had higher CD3 and CD8. That's the light blue graphs. Um, and you can also see on the far right that the tumor. Um, post-treatment shrunk quite a bit along with a decrease in AFP levels. And so again, this is highlighting the area of the scalpel effect, which is that the, there's regression of tumors outside of the field of radiation. So because, and the idea is these CD8 um, cells actually increase that, um, the idea of um, ongoing um, response, peripheral immune response. 
So we still have a few questions to answer about this, specifically which local regional therapy would be more immunogenic, um, what is the optimal timing of checkpoint blockade relative to LRT, and um, importantly, uh, we need biomarkers to predict these responses. These are ongoing trials of immunotherapy with LRT. I'm not going to mention all of them, but there are at least seven or eight on here. These are, again, patients that are unsuitable for curative therapy, whether it's surgical resection, ablation, or transplantation. And most of these uh, treatments you can see are these trials uh, have systemic chemotherapy with either TACE and a few have TEAR as well. Now, so back to our case. So again, we have this 43-year-old lady with uh, compensated NASH cirrhosis and an eight-centimeter Lyrides 5 lesion, two satellite nodules, uh, no vascular invasion. So the question really would be, Amit, um, given this data, what do you think is a reasonable approach for someone like this? Yeah, Anjana, when I take when I take a look at this patient, there's a couple of things that I really note. The first is that um, as you said, that her current tumor burden, her largest lesion is eight centimeters. There's the two satellites. Uh, and unfortunately, this puts her outside of UNOS downstaging criteria. Um, and so even if she did have a response, um, you know, we would not be able to get exception points uh, for her for liver transplantation. Um, and I think this is notable because she's 45. This is a really young woman who's developed HCC. Um, now, just because she's outside of UNOS downstaging doesn't mean she can't get a transplant. I mean, we could still try to um, see if she has a, a favorable response. And if that's the case, then she could be transplanted by living donor liver transplantation. And I would consider that in this case, given particularly given the fact that she's so young. Um, and yeah. so that would be the first thing that I would, I would really think about is what gives us the best chance at response. Now, I mean, you went through all of these exciting data in terms of um, you know, local regional therapy, and then us shifting to considering combination therapies in the future. Um, unfortunately, outside of clinical trials, this isn't standard of care right now. And so this is somebody where if she's eligible for a clinical trial to use the combination therapies, uh, systemic therapy plus, um, you know, taste or tear, I think that would be very nice in this case in hopes of shrinking her tumor burden and then considering her for living donor liver transplantation. Um, if she wasn't eligible for clinical trials, then I think, um, you know, obviously, um, you know, we would otherwise plan to treat with LRT. Um, and with somebody this size, we probably would consider radioembolization more than chemoembolization if she wasn't eligible for clinical trials. Absolutely. We would do the same exact thing in our institution. And I agree, living donation, um, living donor, or identifying a living donor for this um, young woman would be uh, the best outcome. Um, and again, the importance of a multidisciplinary team here really collaborating with your interventional um, radiologist as well as your oncologist based on what her response is when she gets local regional therapies, whether or not she's able to be effectively downstaged, as you said. Perfect. So now I'm just going to kind of switch gears and looking at earlier stage. So again, looking at this modified BCLC staging system, now we're looking at early stage disease or stage A. Again, it can be a single lesion, but up to any size or two to three lesions, all less than three centimeters. Again, preserved liver function, excellent performance status. So solitary lesions, you know, if they're optimal surgical candidate, we move towards resection versus ablation. If not, transplant and the same for two to three um, nodules. And the question is, you know, what will we do to downstage? 
When we're thinking about um, transplantation for HCC, uh, it is again reserved for unresectable HCC. It's the highest chance for cure, again, removing the liver that often has cirrhosis as well as uh, the cancer itself. And it is the indication, uh, and HCC remains the indication for transplant up to 50% of centers in the U US. And so there's a lot of different um, you know, uh, ways that you can get when you have a BCLC a B patient down to within Milan, which as Ahmed said, is what you really need to get those uh, you know, exception points. So we have our next case, which is a 62-year-old man with chronic hepatitis B. Um, again, compensated cirrhosis. He's on um, therapy with tenofovir. And while undergoing HCC surveillance, as he should, he was found to have a liver mass. And the MRI showed a 5.2-centimeter LR5 lesion in segment 6. He's, again, child's PUA, excellent synthetic function. Platelets are 217 um, in excellent performance status. So let's look at who benefits from hepatic resection. So guideline recommendations, really any, um, a single nodule, regardless of size, and anyone with that clinically significant portal hypertension, which is defined as less than or equal to 10 millimeters, um, plus uh, platelets greater than 100,000 uh, do the best, if, and as well as low bilirubin. The five-year survival is up to 70%. Now, this is significantly less if you have clinically significant portal hypertension or elevated bilirubin greater than one. So if we look at this uh, graph on the right, you first have to determine, do you have portal hypertension, yes or no? And when you look at the no, no arm, you want to look at the extension of the hepatectomy. If it's minor, meaning less than three segments, or major, two to three, uh, greater than three segments. And then you look at the MELD score. And if the patient is very well compensated, the MELD less than or equal to nine, they're at low risk. So 5% risk of liver decompensation and mortality is less than 1%. Whereas if the MELD score is greater than um, 9 and you have a major resection, then that's intermediate risk. So less than 30% risk of decompensation, but mortality now increases to 9%. Similarly, though, if someone does have portal hypertension and you're doing uh, minor resection, again, less than three a centimeter, uh, less than three segments, again, it's that intermediate risk category. But if you have portal hypertension, you have major surgery, really it's very high risk and mortality jumps to 25% or more. So in these cases, it's really important to also look at the future liver remnant or FLR. In a normal liver, you want at least 20% or more. And But in a patient with cirrhosis, you want up to 40% or more FLR. And also in a patient with fibrosis or significant steatosis, you also need a higher FLR than in a normal liver. The problem with resection, though, is the recurrence rate is up to 70% in five years. And we currently don't have any proven adjuvant therapy. So these are different trials looking at um, uh, different factors associated with the outcome. Again, as I said, recurrence is 70 to 80% at five years. So if you look at the number of nodules um, if the, or the size of the tumor, if it's less than five centimeters, again, um, much lower a risk um, of recurrence versus higher size, as well as um, the, the tumor-free margin, how far out, as well as blood loss. Now, the only trial that 
we have um, that looked at serafinib or adjuvant serafinib for HCC after resection or ablation. This was a phase three randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial by uh, Jordi Bruges and colleagues called the STORM trial. Um, and it was a multi-center, multi-country trial. Um, they looked at uh, looking for uh, recurrence-free survival. Unfortunately, it was um, negative results. So um, this uh, did not show that um, adjuvant serafinib actually had an increase, um, did not decrease the risk of recurrence-free survival. Now, there are several ongoing phase two trials for adjuvant immunotherapy. Again, these are all patients with high-risk characteristics, as I pointed in the previous slide, or high-risk um, uh, characteristics and, uh, pathologically. These are all CHALIS-PUA patients. So these are the four trials that are currently ongoing in this arena. So we go back to our case. Um, so our 62-year-old uh, gentleman with uh, the 5.2 centimeter Lyrides 5 lesion undergoes a very successful robotic liver resection without complication. Unfortunately, though, his pathology features uh, microvascular invasion and poorly differentiated HCC, which we know have uh, both independently and together have a high risk of a recurrence. So he comes back to clinic, and the question I have for my colleagues would be, you know, what are your options? How do you actively surveillance uh, this uh, gentleman? And uh, what do you think about clinical trials in this setting? Yeah, um, you know, Anjali, see, you, you brought up the fact that, like, after a surgical resection, um, you know, all of these patients are high risk for recurrence, approaching that 50 to 70 percent at five years. Um, and particularly given the high patholo the, these pathologic features of microvascular invasion, poor differentiation, this patient's at that higher end of that, of that risk spectrum. And so, um, you know, this patient, once again, would be a perfect patient for a clinical trial in terms of, um, you know, adjuvant therapy um, and somebody who likely would benefit from, you know, consideration of, of one of the adjuvant trials that is currently ongoing. Um, independent of that, um, you know, once again, he would warrant close monitoring. Um, our typical practice is to do um, CT or MRI-based surveillance um, after surgical resection every three months for the first year. Um, and then we, we spread out to every six months using CT or MRI thereafter. Um, given the high risk um, of recurrence even years after, we actually continue CT or MRI-based surveillance um, and you know don't return back to ultrasound-based surveillance in this high-risk group. Absolutely. Um, again, we do the same thing. I agree with you. We don't return to ultrasound. We do life, uh, lifelong surveillance in these patients, um, especially in the background of cirrhosis, as you mentioned. Slipika, what do you think about this um, besides uh, surveillance? Yeah, I completely agree with Amit that having this patient consider a clinical trial would be a good idea. They have the two high-risk features, as you mentioned, and there are multiple ongoing adjuvant trials right now of single-agent PD-1 or PDL one or combination of PD-1 plus um, VEGF inhibition. So I think consideration of any of those, we want to obviously give our patients the best chance of cure, and given the data in melanoma and other cancers, I think considering adjuvant immunotherapy trials is a good way to go. Excellent. Thank you. So I'm just going to wrap up uh, my talk just to have 
last two slides. Um, so this is looking at neoadjuvant strategy. So this first trial on our left is a single arm phase 1B trial looking at cabocinib and nivolumab. There were 15 patients that were enrolled. And you can see that there was, uh, so these were patients that previously were deemed unresectable and then got this combination therapy and then uh, became resectable. So 12 of these patients underwent resection, had margin um, negative resection, and you can see that waterfall plot on the right. And then when you look at disease-free, um, you can see that the patients that underwent uh, the neoadjuvant therapy actually had more pathologic response versus non-response. And then the, this is another study that is not yet recruiting, but uh, it's atezolizumab and bevacizumab before surgery for the treatment of resectable liver cancer. Again, this will be uh, resectable HCC chalice PUA patients, um, and uh, we'll have N of 30 patients. And primary endpoint really is safety and tolerability. Um, and then finally, uh, this is uh, looking at um, Dervalumab and Tremolumab for HCC in patients listed for liver transplant, chalice PU5 to 7, uh, ECOG 0 to 1. Uh, again, looking at Dervalumab and Tremolumab. Um, and these patients can have, to ha can have to have a minimum of 72-day washout from the end of immunotherapy before they can undergo uh, liver transplantation. And then the primary endpoint here is cellular rejection. So in conclusion, there are several ongoing clinical trials testing the benefits of systemic therapy in combination with other modalities in intermediate and early stage HCC. Again, multidisciplinary care is really crucial in patients with intermediate and early stage HCC, and I would say all patients with HCC. It's very important to collaborate with your oncology and IR colleagues to make sure that you're really providing optimal individual-based treatment and timely treatment for your patients. Thanks, Anjana. That was really um, great to hear all of the exciting advances that are um, ongoing in the um, intermediate and early stage uh, setting. I think it's it's nice to see that some of the the exciting data we've seen come out in the advanced stage setting with the immune checkpoint inhibitors is now being applied um, in these clinical trials to earlier stages of disease, and hopefully uh, we can even see more improvements um, in the future. Um, before we conclude the program, um, I think it's a good um, opportunity for us to take a look at some questions uh, from the audience. Um, you know, we've um, obviously covered, uh, once again, the very exciting data from IM Brave 150, which showed um, improved survival compared to serafinib in the advanced stage setting. But I think whenever we apply this to clinical practice, we have to think of the inclusion and exclusion criteria for that trial and ask, can we use this or should we use this in patients that are in front of us. Um, and notably, this trial excluded patients with significant thrombocytopenia, excluded patients with daily NSAIDs, NSAIDs, and required an EGD within six months for all patients. So can I ask, um, Lipika Anjana, how are you operationalizing these inclusion and exclusion criteria for the patients you see in clinic? Um, and you know, most notably, um, are you requiring an EGD within six months for all of your patients before going on a TZO and BEV? Yeah, certainly it's good to follow the trial criteria as much as possible. For EGD, I do do an EGD on all of my patients who are going on a Tezobev. I'm a little more liberal, I say sometime within the last 12 months. If they have new portal vein thrombosis or new, which could be from tumor or could be from, um, you know, could be bland, 
But if they have new portal vein thrombosis, I'm more likely to recommend it within six months just to make sure that there's no new portal hypertension with varices. But otherwise, within 12 months has generally been my practice. With NSAIDs, you know, it's a good question. Of course, there's always an increased risk of bleeding with the bevacizumab. If we can replace the NSAIDs with something that's a non, not a non-steroidal, such as narcotics, for example, or something else, Tylenol, where they can avoid being on daily NSAIDs, I do that. But ultimately, you know, HCC, unfortunately, is a life-threatening illness. And so with the, the data that we have for Atezobev, I try to just monitor people carefully and proceed. Um, I am an EGD believer. Uh, you know, I think in these advanced cases, it would be different if we were talking about early disease, but in these advanced cases, I think it's really hard to use the Beveno criteria. For instance, what we use for uh, when we use EGDs or we should do EGDs, you know, some of these patients, most of these patients have normal um, platelets. And, you know, there's also, uh, we have data that shows that some of these patients that have elevated platelets, right? Because it could be a perineoplastic thing. But more importantly, I think when you have, even with advanced disease in child's PUA, you know, they, they still about a third of these patients have high risk varices. Um, and there are trials that have shown that. So I am a stickler to this. I do get an EGD within the six months. Um, and then it just helps me kind of figure out how they'll do long term. I don't necessarily, um, I will treat them once I find the findings. I'm not one of, I don't necessarily just look at the EGD and check it off and not do anything about it, you know? Um, so I think you have to actively treat what you see, but uh, yes, I do. Um, I like that. I'm gonna call myself an EGD believer too. Um, and so, um, you know, I think that you brought up um, several important points. I think um, first, Bovino hasn't been validated um, in HCC patients and so we don't know um, if the, the fiber scan results would sort of apply to somebody with a tumor where you may not have this, the same accuracy of those findings. And then you brought up the, also the, the platelet count issue. And so, um, you know, we don't know if those criteria can, can be just um, applied to HCC patients um, uh, and, and use those to, to see who doesn't need an EGD. Um, and then, you know, Lipica, you brought up the, the portal vein invasion or the, the, the portal vein thrombus. Um, and, you know, in the I Am Brave 150 trial, that was actually one of the risk factors for those people who actually had variceal bleeding despite having the EGD up front. Um, you know, those were largely the patients who actually still had some evidence of GI bleeding. And so I think, it's, I think it is critical um, that we do the upper endoscopy for these patients before putting somebody on a TESO and BEV. Um, you know, the trial was actually accompanied by a nice editorial by Katie Kelly in the New England Journal that stressed exactly this point. Um, you know, as we discussed earlier in this presentation, I think part of the reason why this combination was so well tolerated in this population of patients with cirrhosis and HEC was because of the selection criteria. And we can't get lazy as we apply this out to, you know, everyday practice. We have to keep up that, that rigor of doing that upper endoscopy. Um, so, um, you know, another question that I see coming in from the audience, another good question. And, you know, Anjana, you, you alluded, this, alluded to this in your presentation um, in terms of this LRT versus systemic therapies. And I think, you know, this used to be um, two silos that were very separate, and now it's getting much more gray zone uh, material where it's becoming harder to know, you know, should this patient go on systemic therapy up front? And if somebody starts on LRT, when should they transition to systemic therapies? So what factors do you take into account in your multidisciplinary team in terms of when do you transition from LRT to systemic therapy? 
I think that's a great question. And you're right. I, I think it's a, uh, there's a big gray zone now rather than, you know, siloed, you must progress from one to another. And we do combinations in our, uh, uh tumor board as well, or rec recommend combinations in our tumor board as well. I think the most important thing is what is your endpoint? You know, that's what the first question I always ask is, is this someone that's ever going to be downstage to a curative endpoint like transplant or resection? Um, that's one. So if, if they could be, then, um, I'm more likely to use local regional therapy more proactively, as well as looking at their child's pew function, obviously, and their performance status. So if there's child's pew A and, um, you know, have, um, they have, uh, let's say a large dominant lesion, but may also have two other lesions in the other lobe, I could, I would still use local regional therapy, even though that is multifocal HCC and you can technically say it's systemic therapy, you know, but if they have, let's say five, six, two centimeter lesions kind of throughout, then I'm more likely to use um, systemic therapy. So I really think it depends. Um, and then also if there's vascular invasion or not an extent of vascular invasion. So I think there's several factors, including, you know, number of lesions, if it's bilobar or not, if it's infiltrative or not, if it's well capsulated, if it has vascular invasion. And I still think at the point where we're at now with systemic therapies, if you have a favorable outcome, you can still go back to and use LRT again as long as the liver function is preserved. Thanks, thanks, Andrew. That, that was great. Um, so, Lipica, I imagine as the medical oncologist on this panel, you're going to say systemic therapy for all. Um, yeah, but, indeed. It has a bad for everybody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So, um, you know, but, but you know, like, seriousness, like, you know, I think Anjana laid out a nice framework, but how do you approach this in, in your tumor board? Anything that you do differently in terms of LRT versus systemic therapy and this transition for somebody who starts on LRT, when is the right time to go to systemic therapy? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, as Anjana laid out, I think about are they on a curative intent pathway? If they are going towards transplant, I try to stick with liver-directed therapy. Right now in our center, we're not using checkpoint inhibitors for people who are going towards transplant. So for those people, I don't transition to systemic therapy, generally speaking. Otherwise, for people who have BCLC stage B disease, who have multifocal disease, who are unlikely to be on a curative intent pathway for whatever reason, I do think about what is their liver function and what are the systemic therapies we have available. You know, before when our only option was serafinib, you know, serafinib certainly was better than placebo and it was a good option for patients who had systemic disease. But, you know, given the side effect profile and the efficacy profile, I did try to push liver-directed therapy for a long time. Now that we have the atezobev data, I certainly want to give people a chance at atezobev and I want to make sure their liver function is in good enough shape to be able to go on to atezobev. So I think to myself, um, how many rounds of liver-directed therapy have they had and what is the impact on their liver? And also, how well are they responding to liver-directed therapies? If they've had a couple rounds of taste and they're continuing to respond, then absolutely. But if they've had a couple rounds of taste and they, for example, are no longer responding, I think it's a good time to move to liver-directed therapy. I mean, to systemic therapy, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that this is great. So, I mean, you know, these concepts of taste ineligible and taste failure are really now, um, you know, diffusing more and more into tumor board discussions um, and into the literature. Um, you know, we've heard a lot of the factors that go into this. Um, you know, tumor burden, bilobar disease, um, you know, the degree of liver dysfunction at baseline, we, um, you know, these all are important as we consider this discussion of local regional therapy versus systemic therapy. Um, and, you know, when we think of the transition, it's really how is this patient responding um, and tolerating 
So it's not you know, just a matter of did this patient have a decrease in the tumor burden, but did you see a decrease in liver function? Did you see a change in the ALBI score? All of these things are becoming more and more um, important for us to assess um, at baseline and as somebody goes through therapy. And I think we're gonna see more and more data come out about this um, and more algorithms that actually help us in terms of who's best for local regional therapy up front, who's best for systemic therapy, um, who's best for combination therapies, and when is the appropriate time to transition. These are the next big questions that we're gonna have to tackle over the next five years. But these are all good questions to have because it means we have more options. It means we have more tools in our toolbox. So I would argue, um, you know, this is, this is all TBD. Um, we have some of the, the baseline stuff, but um, an exciting time to be involved in the field. So, um, you know, to conclude, um, since we're speaking at the AASLD, I think we do need to obviously, um, you know, explicitly discuss how hepatologists fit into the management of HEC. And of course, I'm biased. As a hepatologist, I always think of ourselves as the quarterback. We're the most important person on that field. Um, and so, you know, I think that we have several roles here in, in the role of that um, patient. I mean, we obviously have to do things um, you know, coming into this, we have to perform screening. We have to make sure that that patient is diagnosed early um, because then we have curative therapies available. We have to educate our patients about liver disease and our HEC risk. And after a patient is diagnosed, it's not like our job is over. We have to continue to work and play a central role within that multidisciplinary team. And you can see that even represented on this panel here, you know, we have two hepatologists that actually serve as the medical director of our tumor programs. And it's really, once again, with this idea that hepatology plays a central role in the treatment for HEC, not only from a transplant perspective, but also continuing to follow those patients through, continuing to monitor their liver function, and you know, really being the voice in the room that can act as that independent sort of negotiator in terms of these discussions between local regional therapy and systemic therapy. Often as the hepatologist, we have known that patient the longest, we know that patient arguably the best, and we can once again help that patient through this journey as they go from one therapy to another, hopefully getting better and better at finding curative options for more and more of our patients. So um, with that, I'd like to thank everyone. I'd like to thank our panelists, um, you know, Dr. Um, Goyle and Dr. Palai for, for joining me uh, today for this exciting um, uh, uh, presentation as well as discussion. Um, I'd like to thank the audience for joining us virtually um, for this last hour and a half. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash ZQB860. This educational activity is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca, Aveo Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Exelixis Incorporated, Genentech, and NovoCure.